This is Bad Ideas About Writing, the podcast that counters major myths about writing instruction. It's the audio version of the open access book, Bad Ideas About Writing, which is edited by Cheryl Ball and Drew Lowy. That book features 63 chapters of opinionated, research-based statements intended to spark debate and offer a better way of teaching writing. I'm Kyle Stedman from Rockford University. I'm here to read those chapters out loud, giving you another way to access those ideas. This is episode 15 of the podcast, and here's today's bad idea about writing. There is one correct way of writing and speaking. It's by Anjali Petanayak. People consistently lament that kids today can't speak properly or that people coming to this country need to learn to write correctly. These lamentations are based on the notion that there is a single correct way of speaking and writing. Currently, the general sentiment is that people should just learn to speak and write proper English. This understanding of writing is rooted in what's called current traditional rhetoric, which focuses on a prescriptive and formulaic way of teaching writing that assumes there is only one way to write or speak something for it to be correct. However, over the past several decades, scholars and writing studies have examined the ways in which writing has a close dialectical relationship with identity, style genre, and culture. In other words, the rules for writing shift with the people and the community involved, as well as the purpose and type of writing. Most people implicitly understand that the way they communicate changes with different groups of people, from bosses to work colleagues to peers to relatives. They understand that conversations that may be appropriate over a private dinner may not be appropriate at the workplace. These conversational shifts might be subtle, but they are distinct. While most people accept and understand these nuances exist and will adapt to these unspoken rules, and while we have all committed a social faux pas when we didn't understand these unspoken rules, we do not often afford this same benefit of the doubt to people who are new to our communities or who are learning our unspoken rules. While the idea of arguing whether there is one correct way of communicating or whether writing is culturally situated might seem to be a pedantic exercise, The reality is that espousing the ideology that there is one correct way to speak and write disenfranchises many populations who are already denigrated by society. The writing most valued in this binary is a type of writing that is situated in middle-class white culture. In adhering to so-called correct language, we are devaluing the non-standard dialects, cultures, and therefore identities of people and their communicative situations that do not fit a highly limited mold. The way in which correctness in language devalues people is already troubling, but it becomes exacerbated by the current trends in education. Please refer to the Literacy Crisis chapter to learn more about the changing dynamics in education. Given this shift and the way that standard written English is deeply rooted in white upper middle class culture, we see more and more students from diverse backgrounds gaining access to college who are facing barriers due to their linguistic backgrounds. This means that while minority students and lower class students are ostensibly being given greater access to education, careers, and other facets of society they have been previously barred from, they are still facing serious barriers that their upper-class white counterparts do not, particularly in terms of culture, language, and literacy. J. Elspeth Stuckey argues that literacy, rather than enfranchising students, is a means of oppression and that it does little to help the economic futures of minority students because of how literacy teaches a particular set of values, ways of communicating, and identity. 
In the context of educational settings, the cultures and identities of academia are valued more than those of the students, which sends the message that how they, their family, and members in their community speak and act are wrong by comparison. In essence, it sends a message starting at a very young age that who they are and where they come from is somehow lesser. In this sense, education, while well-intentioned, serves to further the marginalization of certain identities and cultures that do not fit. This is particularly evident in Latino, African-American, and English as second language communities. In the book, Pain for the Party, Elizabeth Armstrong and Laura Hamilton note that colleges like the school they studied at for five years, which they call Midwestern University, do not help facilitate social mobility. Frequently, the students who entered college best prepared were those who were already middle or upper class, meaning the opportunities the working and lower class students received were more limited. When you look at this, alongside what Gloria Ladson Billings calls the educational debt, or the compounded impact of educational deficits that grow across generations of poor minority students, literacy efforts as they are currently framed paint a bleak picture for poor minority students. The issue is not just one of unequal access to opportunities. Jacqueline Jones Royster and Carmen Kynard illustrate how attitudes toward students as writers are interwoven with attitudes toward them as people. Language cannot be disassociated from people, which has important consequences for those who grow up speaking different dialects. By continuing to propagate the notion of correct and incorrect ways of speaking, we effectively devalue the intelligence and character of students, employees, and colleagues who, for whatever reasons, don't speak or write what in historical terms has been called the King's English, among other names. We use the perception of improper communication as evidence of others' lesser character or ability, despite recognizing that this country was united, if only in name, after declaring independence from that king. This perception becomes all the more problematic because it is not just about devaluing individuals, but about the widespread practice of devaluing the literate practices of those who are already marginalized. David Gold highlights the marginalization of women, working class, rural, and African-American literacy in our understanding of writing. Gold writes about how the literacy practices of African-Americans in universities laid the groundwork for the civil rights movement. Indeed, the schools he studied were decades ahead of the larger national conversation on how literacy, identity, and power were interrelated. In her work examining how literacy and identity formation were key for African-American women and for social change, Jacqueline Jones Royster discusses the importance of understanding these cultural, identity, and social movements, echoing the impact marginalized scholars had in academia. Both demonstrate the detrimental impact of sidelining groups of people and their literate practices by devaluing their languages and their experiences, not just for those who are marginalized, but for our larger understanding of how we, as a society, write. The notion of one correct way of writing is also troubling because it operates under the assumption that linguistic differences are the result of error. The reality is that for many speakers, what we might perceive as a mistake is actually a system of difference. One notable example of a different dialect of English is Ebonics, which has different patterns of speech rooted in the ancestral heritage of its speakers. Similarly, immigrant groups will frequently speak and write English in a way that mirrors the linguistic heritage of their mother tongue. The way that we conceptualize language is not just detrimental to minorities, it also devalues the identities that working and lower class people bring to communicative situations, including the classroom. Lynn Z. Bloom writes that 
freshman composition is an unabashedly middle-class enterprise. She argues that one of the reasons composition is required for all students is because it promulgates middle-class values and ways of thinking. These values in the writing center are embodied in everything from the notion of property, which undergirds the way that plagiarism and intellectual property are treated, to formality of language and rhetorical choices that are encouraged in papers. Indeed, the way many instructors teach writing, plagiarism, citation, and word choice in papers is not in and of itself good, but rather is a socially accepted way of interacting with text as defined by the middle class. Mike Rose and Irvin Peckham write about the tension of middle-class values on working-class students and the cognitive dissonance and struggles with identity that come with imposing such values in writing under the guise of correctness. The idea that there is one correct way of writing devalues the writing, thoughts, intelligence, and identities of people from lower-class backgrounds. Pragmatically, many argue that standard English should be dominant in the binary between academic English and all other dialects in order for speakers and writers to communicate with credibility in their communities. This argument has been used to justify the continued attention to correctness at the expense of authors' voices, but we can teach people to adapt while also valuing their identities. We can talk about writing as something that they can employ to their benefit rather than a hegemonic standard that supersedes their backgrounds, identities, and experiences. In order to value the diversity of communication and identities that exist in the U.S., we need to start teaching and envisioning writing as a cultural and social activity. We need a more nuanced view of writing in society that encourages everyone to adapt to their audiences and contexts, rather than placing an undue burden on those who do not fit the mold of standard English. One strategy for teaching academic English without devaluing a writer's identity is code switching, a concept already taught in schools with significant minority populations as a way of empowering young people. While instruction in code switching is valuable because it teaches students that they can adopt different linguistic choices to appeal to different audiences, it is deeply problematic that the impetus is still placed on minority students with non-standard dialects to adapt. While code switching is meant to empower people, it is still rooted in the mentality that there is one correct way of writing. Because even as code switching teaches an incredibly nuanced way of thinking about writing, it is still being taught in the context of preparing writers to deal with a society that will use errors in speaking as evidence that they are lesser. As a result, it is a less than ideal situation because it plays into rather than undermines the racism of academic English. By perpetuating the myth of one correct way of writing, we are effectively marginalizing substantial swaths of the population linguistically and culturally. The first step in combating this is as easy as recognizing how correctness reinforces inequality and affects our own perceptions of people and questioning our assumptions about communication. And the second step is valuing code switching in a wide swath of communicative situations. Further reading. While the notion of what constitutes academic English has remained relatively static in popular culture, the reality of writing in the university has broadened to include many other types of writing. Patricia Bazell, Helen Fox, and Christopher Schroeder compile arguments for addressing these other types of communication in Alt-Dis, Alternative Discourses and the Academy. In College Writing and Beyond, Anne Beaufort provides a framework in which to understand how writing is dynamic. In her article, Freshman Composition as a Middle-Class Enterprise, Lynn Z. Bloom articulates the way in which the cultural values of the middle class are being taught in the writing classroom as objectively good or true and the impact of this mentality. 
Additionally, a Sao Inoue compiles a collection of articles in race and writing assessment that provides frameworks for considering race in assessment practices. In 1974, the Conference on College Composition and Communication passed the resolution Students' Right to Their Own Language. In the time since it passed, there has been a great deal of discussion around the world of that resolution. Editors Austin Jackson, David E. Kirkland, and Stacey Perryman-Clark compile short articles for and against the resolution called Students' Right to Their Own Language. Bruce Horner, Min John Liu, Jacqueline Jones Royster, and John Trimber write about how the increasing number of English speakers in the world is increasing linguistic diversity in opinion, language difference in writing toward a translingual approach. Additionally, Irvin Peckham writes extensively with a focus on working class students in the classroom and the impact of college and academic writing as a middle class enterprise in The Stories We Tell. For more on the history and cultural development of African-American vernacular English, consider Beyond Ebonics, Linguistic Pride and Racial Prejudice by John Baugh. Keywords, African-American vernacular, cultural rhetorics, Ebonics, non-standard dialect, rhetorical genre studies, writing, and class. You just heard the bad idea about writing. There is one correct way of writing and speaking. It's by Anjali Petanayak. Here's a bio that blends the 2017 published version of her bio with a couple of updates that I got in 2020. Anjali Petanayak is working towards an ed.d. degree in educational leadership from Edgewood College. She's also served as the academic enrichment program coordinator for the Office of Multicultural Student Affairs at the University of Wisconsin-Platteville and has run programs that help underrepresented students transition into their first year of college to support retention and matriculation. She has spent over five years doing outreach work with underrepresented youth as they transition to college, and she has taught both first-year composition and first-year experience classes. You can find her on Twitter at ARPetanayak and at Laleth underscore Feyanaro. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Let me add an extra thanks to everyone who has supported me through these 15 episodes. I can't believe that we're this far in and that we have so many more to go. I'm really excited. Stick with me. The podcast version of Bad Ideas About Writing is produced and narrated by me, and it's hosted at anchor.fm. You can find it anywhere you like to get your podcasts. The theme music is Parade by Nocturnum. You can check him out at the Free Music Archive and his SoundCloud. The open access book, Bad Ideas About Writing, was first published in 2017 by the West Virginia University Libraries and Digital Publishing Institute, and it's available online at their website for free. Just Google it. That's where you'll go if you want to read a print version of this chapter. Both the podcast and the book are published under very open Creative Commons licenses, which allow you to remix and distribute them for free. Just just give attribution to everyone involved if you do so. Thanks to Cheryl Ball and to Drew Lowy and to all the authors in this awesome collection. I'm Kyle Stedman. I'm on Twitter at KStedman, and I live in Rockford, Illinois, where our like unseasonably warm early November turned into a, a morning the other day where I had to take the trash out when it was like 30, feels like something in the 20s. And I have to admit, at first I was really afraid, but then I put on my hat and I put on my gloves and I put on my coat. And you know what? It was actually okay. So 
I can handle the winter. Can you? I can. All right. Thanks for listening.